Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Jamie Fow. Jamie is the co-founder of Peace for All of Us Homes, a transitional living home for young people aging out of foster care in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. Well, welcome, Jamie, and thank you so much for participating in our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. I'm so glad. Well, as I do with all of the podcast interviews, the first thing I'm going to ask you today is to please share a little about yourself and how it is that you got connected with the foster care system. Sure. Well, first, I'd like to say thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here and share part of my story with you and your listeners. You're welcome. So how I got into foster care is a bit of a, I would say, U-turn in the plans that I had for myself in my future life. I got married and the plan was to have children, natural biological children, and, you know, live our lives have 2.2 children, white house, pick a fence, you know, all that stuff. And a year after we were together and we were married, I found out I couldn't conceive children naturally. I pretty much have every diagnosis that a woman can have to not be able to conceive. So Uh. yeah. And so, you know, that was painful for sure at the time. But looking back now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't trade the life I have now at all. So I'm actually quite fine with my uterus. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that was kind of how we got into foster care. At the time, I was working in group homes and my husband was working in a children's hospital and he was actually a guard on patrol on the suicide watch ward because everybody describes him as a gentle giant. He's so calm and patient. And what he does so well that so many people struggle with is he listens. He doesn't try to find the perfect thing to say. He just listens and is there. And it's such a validating thing, especially for teenagers. So he was there. I was working in group homes with teens who were struggling as well. And so we recognized right away that there was a need for children to have homes where there were loving parents in a structured environment. So about a year after we were married, we became treatment foster parents. And we were quite young. I was only 27 and he was 24. And so looking back now, I think, oh my goodness, we were babies. Like, I just can't (laughs) believe that we... We managed. So that we've been treatment foster parents for 10 years now. And being in Canada, I'm not sure what the titles, if there's any different titles, but basically a treatment foster parent is one who parents children with complex needs. And so we have five children in total. Some are diagnosed with autism, some have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, attention hyperactive deficit disorder nonverbal learning disorder. So I don't like defining my children or our children in this way, but that's just some of the issues that we, and the behaviors and, you know, so it's definitely a higher level of needs that the children have. And so, yeah, it's been 10 years. We 
have three children who live with us right now and two have quote unquote aged out, but we're still very much involved in their daily lives. And that was kind of, I guess, well, we started fostering in 2011. And by 2013, I recognized, you know, the need for more advocacy. The system isn't working. And I was kind of tired of hearing, you know, whenever I would complain or bring something forward, I would hear a lot of, well, that's just the way the system works. And you know, I didn't like that answer. And so I went back to school thinking, you know what, I'm going to become more educated so that I can be a fierce advocate for these children and future children who are in the system. And so I just graduated in 2016 with my honors degree in psychology and went right into my master's degree in 2017 of social work. So I'm about to graduate with my master's of social work. My thesis is almost complete. And so my thesis explores the training and support needs of foster parents, particularly in Manitoba, but also all over Canada and North America. Because as a foster parent myself, but also just in the research, it's clear that foster parents do not get enough support. They do not have enough education or training, and they don't necessarily come equipped with the skills necessary to respond to the needs of the children in care. And so all of this to say that I believe that the children in care deserve better and it's possible to make those changes. So then, (laughs) throughout my master's degree, I became a research coordinator through the University of Manitoba where I study. And you know, just learning, of course, I was already very exposed to child welfare, but also some of the major reasons why children come into foster care is because there's violence in the home, particularly domestic violence, where there's a male perpetrator and a female victim. And then the expectation is that the female victim protect her children and get away from the male perpetrator, which as we know, is not only dangerous, it's often deadly. And it's near impossible with no support. So as a result, these children are taken into foster care, despite having a mom who loves them dearly. And so my husband and I decided to create a housing initiative called Peace for All of Us Homes, where you know, my husband is a stay-at-home person and he is a fabulous stay-at-home dad, but he also does a lot of day trading and he does a lot of really good investments. And so we were able to save enough money to buy two houses, one for female survivors of domestic violence and for her children to live in. And the other one is for youth aging out of care. Because as we experienced two of our older boys aging out, you know, ideally, they stay at home with us. And they, you know, they grow up, they live in our basement and go to school or whatever. But as we find is in particular, children in care, they need that time when they're 18 to maybe move out and experience some life independently, because for the majority of their lives, they've been told, you know, by the system, where to live, what to do and all of these things. So we understood that. And And found that it was almost impossible to find safe housing that was affordable and 
promoted dignity for our kids. And so that was the impetus for the housing for both the domestic violence and the youth aging out of care. We decided to do this during the pandemic, which, you know, was (laughs) a bit of its own little mess there. But we had our, our own children involved in renovating and cleaning because both units came fully furnished. So we moved in all the furniture. And yeah, it's just been honestly so rewarding. We've had a tenants move in. Both units have been full since we opened them in January of this year. And so, yeah, I would say so far, so good. Well, that's wonderful. So you say there's two units. Does that mean like two apartments for two people or is it two houses where each house can hold more than one person? They're both condos. So yeah, apartment style. And the domestic violence unit houses the woman and up to three children. And then the youth aging out of care has two bedrooms. So two youth are in there currently. Okay. And do you have that designated for either young men or young women? Is there any kind of you know restriction there? Right. Well, it's funny that you asked that because I had it in my head that we would have two females just because we did a lot of research, talked to a, like our own social workers and other social workers out in the field about like what they thought and who would be, you know, ideal tenants. And everybody said females because, you know, even though females, teenage girls aren't perfect by any means, it's usually the boys, the teenage boys who are having the parties, who are, you know, <laughs> doing the hosting of the party. So we always had it in our head that we would have two teenage girls in there. However, two boys applied and they, you know, hit the nail on the head. They answered the questions great. And they were attached to a case manager as well, who is kind of like an independent living situation where, you know, if they needed help or anything, they could go to him. And they've both been living in there. It's been, my husband goes over there quite often. We bring them little treats, like one of the boys got a job. So we brought over gift cards and we, you know, have had to do minor repairs to like a door and things like that. And every time Kevin goes there, he's like, man, it's so clean in there. So (laughs) yeah. Well, that's great. And you started this on your own. You saved the money. Mm-hmm. You purchased these units yourselves. Did you have any other funding provided to you for this? Do you have any partners, in other words, that help you, that are helping you get this off the ground? I would say not formally, but informally, I would say certainly the entire community of Winnipeg has just really stepped up. We put a call out for donations for furniture and just housewares, everything. Like all the the tenants needed to do was bring their toothbrushes and clothes. Essentially, there was like spatulas and pots and pans, and everything was provided. And so we put a call out for furniture, but we really wanted to let our community know that this wasn't furniture that was you know on its way to the dump. Like we wanted like high quality furniture that would. Again, like our motto is kind of about promoting dignity, right? And we want these tenants to come in and feel proud to call this place their home. We want things that are going to outlast children to jump on and, you know, all of these things. And so we had people donate brand new items. We had people offering to move in furniture. 
And my extended family, like my mom and a couple of my other relatives, certainly were very supportive as well. Kevin's family lives in a different province, although they are supportive from a distance. They, of course, couldn't help move furniture. And then we shared on Facebook to thank everybody and say, like, we appreciate the support. And I guess somebody had shared that to a local radio station. And then they shared it on the air. And that's where things kind of picked up a little bit more. We we decided because of so many requests to donate money that we started a GoFundMe page. And so we got quite a few donations from that. But other than that, it's been just solely Kevin and I, you know, saving our own money for the condos and just going with that for now. We hope in the future that because I know in Manitoba and Canada more widely, housing is a large issue and it's on the government's radar. And so we are hoping in the future that we can put down on paper a 10-year plan in hopes to get some funding so that we can expand our model because we truly believe that our model is the way housing should be. It shouldn't be something like, well, you should be happy to have this. You know, and I think that's too often the perspective that people who have very comfortable homes (laughs) and have never considered what it would be like to be homeless or to live, maybe not homeless, but to live in a place that isn't safe or is very dirty or is, you know, just somewhere where nobody would want to call home. So we want folks to feel very proud of where they live and from there they can begin you know, their healing journey and to see what their potential future looks like. Sure. So are you subleasing the condo? I'm just trying to get an idea if someone were interested in trying this. You purchase the condos yourself. Do you then just turn around and sublease them to the folks who you're renting to? Yeah. So right now we understand that especially, well, actually both populations, the women experiencing domestic violence and the youth aging out of care, both populations are quite, you know, they can be transient and like, you know, be unstable and move in and maybe move out. So it is, it is a month to month lease and there is no expectation of length of stay, but we encourage them if this works for you, stay for 10 years or stay for one month. So it's very open. We are currently working with a shelter and an independent living organization for the youth aging out of care and so because there is such limited housing options we could call anybody tomorrow and say hey we have a spot and it would be filled um ah, yeah I see. yeah and do they pay the rent yeah to you i'm wondering how that works like is there any kind of financial support for the young people because sometimes they come out of foster care and it's tough for them to find a job exactly and so with this organization there is an independent living so I think what they do is they pay what our our employment insurance assistance it's called EIA what they would pay for rent which is about $600 a month which is as you know nothing so that's why they end up getting stuck in a rooming house somewhere with you know people who are not stable in a place that's not very safe so in order to be able to maintain these units, we put 
enough money down on the down payments of the condos so that each unit, we still are losing money each month, but it's minor. We knew that each individual got approximately $600 a month in rent from government assistance. And with women, based on how many children she has, it would depend. So anywhere from $800 for a woman and one child to $1,100 for a woman and three children. So essentially, we made it so that the tenants would only have to pay us, not anything else. So all of the utilities and internet, all of these things are in our name so that they just have the one bill to pay. They don't have to worry. And also, if they don't want people finding out where they live, you know, nothing is in their name, like for, you know, utility companies or these things. So it just makes it easier too if they're only going to be there temporarily to put things in their name and then transfer it out. So they just have one simple bill to pay to us and then we pay everything else. Okay. What's the name of the independent living program that you partner with? I'd love to give them a call out on the website. Sure. It's McDonald Youth Services. McDonald. And that's in your area in Winnipeg? In Manitoba, yeah. In Manitoba. And so does this independent living program provide any kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, curriculum to help teach the young people life skills or anything along those lines to help them transition to adulthood? I would say yes, that's the ideal. For the youth aging out of care, you have to meet certain requirements in order to be part of the program. So it's not like a shoe win that you'll get in. It's like you have to be in the mindset that you want to, you know, go to university or you want to get a job, you want to live independently. And so they have a case manager who will help walk them through like budgeting, for instance, like the case manager attached to our housing unit, talk to his, like the boys there about like groceries and, you know, you only have this much money for the month and, you know, make sure. So there is a little bit of that that goes on. I would say there definitely needs to be more. It's just certainly we don't have a lot of funding for that, right? It's all the funding is in foster care. And then as soon as they turn 18, it's like, okay, you're fully grown now. You know, you're an adult, so you're kind of on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, the, the first question I wanted to ask about just generally how things are in Canada, most of the folks I've talked to are here in the United States. And I'm just curious if there's much of a difference. Do you have much housing, transitional housing for youth aging out of foster care in Canada? I know in the United States, it's growing. It seems like there are a lot of people becoming more aware of the issues around aging out of foster care, the homelessness and the other challenges. And it seems like I'm seeing more and more stories about programs and churches starting housing programs. So I'm encouraged that there are more and more. I'm just wondering, how do things stand there in Canada in regard to the awareness of and the availability of transitional housing? Well, I would like to tell you that things are improving. But I can say for my own province in Manitoba, things are definitely going the wrong way, which was part of our inspiration for creating our own housing initiative because right now and for years now we've been like our province is ran by a fiscally conservative government 
And so basically anywhere where there can be cuts, there will be cuts. And the austerity in our province is unbelievable. So just recently in 2020, we got a notification that we had two months notice where before, prior to 2020, youth in care from the ages of 18 to 21 could stay at their foster home and receive the foster parents would receive the same per diem that they were receiving and the same kinds of support as long as the child, you know, had, and I say child because I firmly believe in between the ages of 18 and 21, like you can vote, you can drink a beer, but I truly do not believe your prefrontal cortex is developed enough to make (laughs) life, you know, important life decisions independently. And so In between 18 and 21, youth were able to get what was called an extension of care, and they could stay where they were, they could stay put, and in 2020, that was totally cut. So now, foster parents can obviously keep these children in their homes, however, they're not getting reimbursed, they're not getting, so, you know, this child, if this is the person's only source of income, and this child needs a bed, and is no longer getting any source of income, it can be quite arduous to find homes or beds for these children. Everybody knows raising an 18 to 21 year old is challenging at best. So (laughs) I mean, it was a big shock and there was almost no notice. And, you know, some children had approved extensions of care that, you know, 60 days later just ended. Oh, Yeah. And so, you know, and this I find happens often in foster care where it's like, well, if you truly love these kids, you wouldn't care about the money. And believe me, I don't think anybody can do this job for the money because it's hard. And, you know, some days I tell people, I feel guilty for taking any money for my life because I love my children. And then the next day, it wouldn't be worth it for a million dollars, right? (laughs) There's challenges and there's struggles. And I think it's okay for foster parents to be honest about it. Like, I couldn't love my children any more than if they were my birth children or whatever you want to say. But it's very challenging work. And it's very unsupported work. And it's stigmatized. And it's 24-7. And there aren't any vacations. And so I just think like, for what foster parents get reimbursed, it's really, they're exploiting those who do it, they're exploiting their love. And I think our government was hoping that the kids would just stay in their beds unpaid, and the foster parents would just try to get by. And although that is happening in some cases, other cases, it's not. And so they're in Manitoba. The majority of homeless people are or have been youth in care. So that speaks volumes to how, you know, our system can improve. There can be improvements that can be made for sure. And the housing issue is truly only getting worse. We have less than 1% vacancy rate. Rent prices are going out of control. Even though we do have rent control here, it just seems like Winnipeg is growing and rent is just increasing. Like it would be okay if rent prices were increasing if also 
government assistance was increasing, but of course it isn't. So right. that's a huge problem. Wow. Okay. So it's very interesting. I know every state here in the United States is different, you know, as the provinces are up there. So we have many, many states down here that have extended foster care and even extended the extended foster care during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> right. So especially not all, I don't believe all states have, but many states have extended. So it's, do you know if the other provinces have followed this same suit or is it really just because you have the more conservative leadership there that you think that's why this has happened, like the fiscal conservatism? Yeah. Well, there are a couple provinces that are doing much better than us, but I would say the Prairie provinces, definitely there's a conservative wave going through our country right now. And so Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, it's not a Prairie province, but it's close enough. But those four larger provinces are definitely more conservative, more cutting going on for sure. And as this happens, it's a bit of a numbers game as well. And so the conservative government wanted to end extensions of care because we were counting those numbers as children in care. And Manitoba in particular has been in the media quite a bit nationally even, or internationally, because we are the province that one of the places in the world with the highest rate of children in care in the world. So they wanted to get those numbers down. And so I, of course, I'm assuming this, that they ended this extension of care program because then the numbers of children in care immediately decreases because they are technically no longer in care. They're instead homeless. And so they're also doing other things to, you know, count numbers of children in care in different ways in order to get the number down. But I say, like, let's provide good housing at the end of care, but let's provide really good preventative service at the beginning. And then, you know, our numbers would naturally decline if families in need were receiving that support. Right. There's so many different ways that you can try to prevent the young people from getting into foster care to begin with. It's difficult, though, because you only have so much in the budget. And so yes, I know that it's a challenge. You think, you know, it's, it seems logical. We'll put the money up front to prevent the young people from going in. Then you don't need as much. Yeah. But there's a, I guess there's a fear there that, well, then we won't have the money for the young people who are in care or what if we're wrong and the young people still go into care. It's really tough. I know it's not an easy thing to solve. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm saying this from someone who isn't in politics, who doesn't have the province or the country or the city of Winnipeg to lead. And so it's easy, you know, for me to say, do this. I don't have the taxpayers to answer to, certainly. And I would argue, you know, too often, um, and that's why I was inspired by your podcast, because too often people talk about what we can't do or what is impossible or, you know, and that's why Kevin and I just wanted to do something, right? To make some change, even though we are just one and two people, you know, to make some change for that ripple effect, right? So we are positively impacting other lives and those who have been affected by 
being in foster care or who have almost gone into foster care because of the domestic violence, you know, that's being negated. So, yeah. Right. Well, is your organization an official nonprofit there? It is not. We are considering doing that. We just, we have to talk to like a lawyer about becoming a nonprofit. We mostly wanted to try for 12 months just to see how this went. We received so many, I mean, people who meant well, but said, oh my goodness, your condos are going to get destroyed or like, don't do this. Or, you know, the people will take advantage of you. And, you know, just kind of that rhetoric of wanting to protect us, but also, you know, assuming that children who've been in care or women escaping domestic violence are somehow unworthy of this. And so we just wanted to make sure we had everything in place and get the housing going and then worry about all that technical stuff later. And so (laughs) (laughs) because it's intimidating when you think about starting an initiative that goes into a nonprofit, it's like a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of work. And we wanted to make sure, okay, we're going to do it first and then we can write our mission statement and really consider our values and then make it a nonprofit. So that's in the Mm -hmm. process. And is it relatively easy? I mean, I know there's paperwork and hoops to jump through, but is it relatively easy to start a nonprofit in your province? Yeah, yeah. You would have to get a lawyer and do all the paperwork and things like that. But once you know what you want to do and you know who to reach out to, and then once you get all your ducks in a row, it's relatively easy. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds you know pretty close to the way it is here. Yeah. Yeah. But it's encouraging to hear that you just, you went ahead and tried it because you felt the call to do so. The need was there. And I think so many people wait until they are able to start the nonprofit. And I understand why, because if anybody donates, right, then you can say we're a nonprofit, it's tax deductible. You know, that's appealing to people to have Mm -hmm. that. And I totally get that. But I admire that you jumped in (laughs) with two feet and just decided, you know, let's just do it. Yeah. And then we'll worry about the nonprofit, you know, filing for nonprofit status. That really takes some courage, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was definitely a leap of faith, but I just like I was so inspired in my undergraduate degree to take psychology. I tell all of our children and anybody who asks me about university, just take one psychology course because It has truly stuck with me. I remember we spent about one month on just happiness. And so many people think that you generate happiness from wealth or from a fast car or from, you know, money, just monetary possessions. And, you know, we learned that's actually the antithesis of happiness and happiness is creating community and being socially involved and connected and helping others and being you know altruistic and like just all of these socially positive pro-social things instead of living in our very large houses isolated watching a screen with our you know (laughs) gucci handbag or whatever and so (laughs) and so that really resonated with me and my husband And we subscribe to that all of the time. Like I am wearing a $12 dress right now. (laughs) 
and and mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I'm happy about it. I I mean, most importantly, we're also teaching our kids this. You know, of course, they aren't old enough to understand we have a 12 and a 14 year old. So they're usually the ones that are helping us sweep the floors or moving the furniture and these things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard for them always to recognize, oh, this is making me very happy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but afterwards, you know, they see the tenants or they hear about the tenant stories and, you know, it's contagious. Like mm-hmm. we did this. We did this. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're verging into philosophy here, but it's really, I've come across discussion. My degree was psychology as well, but that was, that was a long time ago, (laughs) (laughs) but it's the question of meaning versus happiness, right? Yeah. So all of the marketing, at least down here, all the marketing is all about the fast cars and the things, here's the things that will make you happy. Yes. But I believe what really makes life worth living is finding meaning. Yes. And maybe you aren't necessarily, you know, giddy happy, but if you have meaning, then that's the more important thing. And truly my infertility like created such a fierce passion and meaning of my life that I just when I was 25 did not see coming. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I truly believe that. Yeah, and you had the resiliency to get through that and be able to learn from it as well. And that's something else that I think is very difficult for young people who have gone through a lot of tragedy and trauma in their life is building resiliency. Some young people seem to have it in spades. Who knows where Mm -hmm. it comes from? But I know that you can help build resiliency. But that's the other thing that I think is really important to help young people with is maybe help them try to find what's the meaning in your life, but also how can you be resilient in the face of problems? For sure. I definitely feel like I'm quite resilient and that I'm lucky, you know, to be resilient and recognize that you know, just because somebody isn't as resilient as me does not mean they are not as strong or that they are weak. It's just, you know, they're chemicals that made up their brain. It's different than mine. When I was quite young, when I was 13, my cousin who was also 13 took his own life. We lived in a very small town. And so that was quite difficult. And then less than one year later, my brother was killed in an accident. And then a year after that, my parents got divorced. So within three years, you know, I went from a family of five to a family of three. I lost my cousin, who was my best friend. And so a lot of people look at that and say, you know, how strong I am to come through that. And I say, no, that's a little bit of luck in there, too. Like, I mean, I could have very easily gone the other way. And so I think you stay humble in that, you know, you don't always... People are in their positions, not because they're individually flawed, you know, and I think it's easy for society to be like, well, she didn't work hard enough or he didn't work hard enough. No, there are things in people's lives that they can't control. I will never be a person to judge someone for where they are in their life because of my own experience. Right, exactly. We all have unique, have you heard the term protective factors? Yes, yes. That's something that I'll encourage the listeners to look up, and I'll try to put a link in the website for that. The idea is that there are certain things that, as we're growing up, 
in our formative years that are considered protective factors, like maybe having two parents or at least one parent who loves you very much, or, you know, you're able to go to school and not move around a lot. Those types of things. These are things that help build this resiliency for one thing is it helps to build resiliency in young people and it helps them be able to, you know, to manage and deal with risks that come up because they're risk factors as well. So it's really, I think, understanding the backgrounds of the young people, maybe even helping the young people to think through what were your protective factors? You know, yes. what, what were the positives that you had growing up? And let's think about that. And how can we build on those so you can, you know, transition and envision a future for yourself that you want? Yes. Yes. And I think that that is something that children in care often miss out on. You know, nobody asks them what they want or not as often as say a child who was born and raised with their birth family. It's less prevalent. And so I get so excited when people have these conversations because we have these conversations with our children often and my daughter who's 12 she is quite the social activist and you know when George Floyd passed away or sorry was murdered in the United States of course there was a ripple effect that came north to Canada there were a lot of protests and stand-ins here as well and so two of our children are well all of our children are indigenous and two of them are indigenous and black and so she wanted to come and so we stood and did the chanting and did the stand-ins and walked to the parliament and I remember when we were walking home I asked her so do you think that you're going to be doing this and taking your kids when you're my age and without hesitation she was 11 at the time she said no mom I hope by the time I'm your age we won't have to do this anymore wow that's pretty wise for that yeah Yeah. And so I just, I really enjoy having those conversations with our children about the future. And like, you know, she sees, despite her early years, she sees such hope and positivity in the future. It's inspiring. Yeah. What I would love to see, and I don't know if it would ever be possible, is, you know, teachers in our school systems have a curriculum to follow right? At every age, young people need to learn X, Y, and Z. I would love for foster parents to have a curriculum to follow. And I understand that young people would come into their lives at different ages, but wherever they are, you would have a curriculum that you could start. Yes. And it would be life skills related. It would be things like these conversations with them about their goals and their desires and how to reach them. It would be thinking about their protective factors. It would be that side of their lives that the foster parents would try to help bolster and build. I wish something like that could happen. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because that's essentially what I will be doing in my PhD program. So I was originally... Uh, slated to start September of this year, but because of COVID and things, I had to delay my master's degree a couple months. So I'm starting in January of 2022, and I've received a federal grant to implement, well, sorry, to design and develop a training program specifically for Manitoba's foster parents, and then to pilot it during my PhD program, because 
I couldn't agree with you more. When Kevin and I became foster parents, like I said earlier, we were so young and very naive, despite being exposed to children with, you know, complex needs and the teenagers who struggled to live at home. We were exposed to this, but we were not prepared. And we firmly believe we had a placement breakdown approximately nine months after we began fostering and then have had two since. And I just feel like those in particular, two of them could have been prevented had we had more training and not just training, like you were saying, a curriculum, like standardize it so that, you know, when I get a 12 year old, I will have assumed that the prior placement at 10 years old did X, Y, or Z, and we can continue that process just like grade five or grade six and whatever. And that would be the dream for sure. And so I'm so excited to begin the program just for many reasons, but I just feel like foster parents aren't equipped to advocate for youth and they are often left out of the professional picture. You know, so when there's a roundtable discussion about a child in care, oftentimes the foster parent is not asked, like, what do you think? And I think that's the critical piece. I tuck these kids into bed every night. I know what they like and what they don't like. I know how they are going to react to this or that. And there's also almost no communication from previous foster parent to current placement to future place. You know, like you just get this child with very limited information. And so, yeah. And I think that can be worked on. I mean, the whole system can't be changed in a day, but we can make these smaller changes that are cost effective that will improve the lives of not only the foster parents, but especially the children in care. Absolutely. And I know we're getting to the end of our time, but there's no reason why there couldn't be an online program, an online mm-hmm. software program that would be able to track a young person's you know, life skills development and so forth no matter where they're placed, no matter their age, just like a healthcare system, you know, any doctor exactly. can access your healthcare. I would hope that any foster care or rather foster parent or social worker could access that and see where the young person is in their development. And wouldn't it be great if birth families could access that and be like, okay, I, sure, my heart is hurting and I don't get to raise my child But I can look up and maybe see a couple photos on there, like, you know, your class photo and like how they're doing or what sports they're engaged in. And I, I don't understand. I don't know if it's the same in the States, but here, like, it's very anonymous. The parents, the birth parents aren't allowed to know like where we live or where the child is or what school they go to. And I mean, there have been so few instances where parents have tried to, you know, go to the child's school or they just want to know about mm-hmm. their child. Yeah. And, and that could be a safe way to do it. I mean, if, if they're yeah. concerned about young person's safety, there has to be a safe way online to be able to share some of yeah. that with the parents. Yeah, absolutely right. I thoroughly enjoy, you know, we send our youngest is five and he is just the cutest little boy. He has autism and is nonverbal and is the most, I would pay all of the money that I have to be able to read his mind sometimes just the way he does things. And it's just, he has inspired me for sure. 
but we send his birth family photos very often. And I truly love that. I want them to share in that experience. And I guess I'll just say when we started fostering, I grew up in a very conservative town where I thought, well, obviously these birth parents don't love their kids because if they did, they wouldn't be taken into care. And that's how young and naive I was. And so when you get exposed and you understand, you know, the systemic issues, the systemic racism, the incredible hurdles, the lack of justice, the system is set up against in particular Indigenous people in Canada. But then on the other side, I just remember the moment that I just fell in mad love with the two children who were in our home at the time, who were still in our home. And it just like this voice in my head just said to me in that moment, like, to love these children is to love their family. And I have carried that with me. And that is our philosophy. So, you know, just no judgment. I understand that, you know, a lot of people in our country and North America in in total have had really difficult upbringings, really difficult experiences. And Sometimes their children end up in care by no fault of their own, the large majority of the time. And most of the women and the men are fighting hard to get their children back or are and hit roadblocks. And so I just go through life with that philosophy that I do love our children deeply. And that means that I need to love their family and be a fierce advocate for them too. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a great philosophy to hold. Thank you. I believe that. Well, I hate to say this. We really have run out of time here. But before we close, I do want to ask if anybody wanted to donate either items or maybe money to your organization, the Peace for All of Us Homes, where can they go to do that? That is a great question. (laughs) They could go to, well, we have a Facebook page. It's obviously facebook.com slash peace for all of us homes okay and that will lead them to the gofundme link there's also a ton of like media that we just got like picked up in the media quite a bit in january and february and so there's links to that and yeah right on the facebook page great great well i always ask this question last and although i think you've expressed it throughout in different ways but i'm going to ask you to maybe summarize What is it that you love the most about this organization that you've started, Peace for All of Us Homes? I love that it's grassroots. It's literally two people who had, you know, this need to do something and that the community response has been only support. And I guess the only other thing that I will say is that it has inspired other people in the community, including our own realtor, to begin their own, you know, housing initiative to make rent affordable for others. And of course, it promotes the dignity for the tenants who we are happy to house. That's wonderful. And that's what we hope too through these podcasts is as people hear these programs and how they're started and how they're structured, that they themselves are also motivated to go out and do something for these young people too. So I, what you're happy about what happened with your organization, I certainly hope happens 
throughout things like these podcasts as people listen to them. So thank you very much, Jamie, for participating in this podcast series. I'm really excited to learn about you and about what you're doing there. And I do wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, for those who have listened to the podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every two or three weeks or so. So you can look for that on our website, agingoutinstitute.org. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.